Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Welcome to another broadcast of the White Horse Inn. We are in part four of our series, What Did Paul Say? And in this broadcast, we'll be talking about the supposed contrast between Paul and James regarding the doctrine of justification. I am Kim Riddlebarger, your host for this edition of the White Horse Inn. And with us in studio are two of our regular White Horse Inn crew. I won't call them characters. I was mercilessly rebuked last time for calling Ken Jones a character. Yes, two of our regular members of the White Horse Inn team are here. Uh, the Reverend Ken Jones. Ken is the pastor of Greater Union Baptist Church in Compton here in Southern California. Also with us is Dr. Mike Horton. Mike is a professor of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in California. And, and, le- an- and Lesser Union Reformed Church. <laughs> <laughs> and a member at Lesser Union Reformed Church. And I, by the way, for my day job, am the pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, Which is the uh, least California. of the union. Uh, no respect it could be worse though we could be off with Dr. Rod Rosenblatt our our missing team member who is still I think in the final week of recovery from that major uh, laser surgery where he had that uh, big tattoo of Susanna Wesley burned off I'm I'm glad he did because I can uh, I think the extra time actually he said he might get a tummy tuck while he was at it so I think that's part of it I want to see the new tattoo well he can walk around with his shirt off again so that'll be good Okay, we're talking about the discussion that goes on in so much of especially the intramural debates among Christians and now with this whole business of the new perspective on Paul and within the camp discussions now about justification by faith alone and what relationship obedience plays. But this is also an important part of our historical debate with Roman Catholicism, and that is the language of Paul on justification versus James on justification. Ken and Mike, do you want to give us a real quick summation of Paul's doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ? Would you kind of walk us through that briefly to to set the stage for a discussion of James chapter 2? Well, as we've said in previous shows on the subject, Paul's doctrine is is pretty clear that uh, a sinner is declared righteous by God based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ apart from any obedience to the Mosaic law. Now, those who are justified... Or anything else. Or anything else. Those who are justified are being conformed to the image of Christ, but the basis of their justification is not obedience and it's not faithfulness, but the basis of their justification is that God credits their faith as righteousness because he imputes to them the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that even that faith is but an empty hand bringing nothing to the table, just receiving the righteousness of Christ. Exactly. The faith itself is not a work, but a gift. And it's the instrument by which we receive God's justifying grace. So what's really important here is the recognition that the merit by which we're justified is not ours, but it's Christ's. Right. It's not in our works or our faith. It's in Christ's works, in his fulfillment of everything God demanded of Adam under the original covenant of works and restated in the Ten Commandments and then again still binding in the moral law. So Christ fulfills all of that and his fulfilling of that law is credited or reckoned or transferred to our account through faith as our sin 
the guilt of our sin is reckoned or imputed to Christ on Calvary so that when he dies on the cross, he in effect dies for our sins in our place. This is what we refer to as the substitutionary atonement. So for us, this really is the heart of the gospel, is it not? Absolutely. All right, then the question comes up, right? Doesn't James contradict that? In James 2, and I want to read the passage because this uh, it probably helped to have this before us. James 2, verse 14 and following, you read this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And here's really the critical verse in this whole discussion, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, there's a long history of, of course, the problem with this passage in the Reformation tradition. Luther is famous. Uh, Luther is often quoted here as saying, you know, that bloody epistle of James, the epistle of straw, it mentions Christ nowhere. And, and you always say the first accusation is that Luther didn't even believe James was canonical. What do we say in response to that objection? Well, first of all, there were reasons. <laughs> Luther, you don't necessarily want to be the only one at the table deciding what stays in the canon. Uh, <laughs> he was you know, very vituperative about making sure that something mentioned Christ. Of course, the Song of Solomon doesn't mention Christ. Proverbs doesn't mention Christ. Esther. Yeah, arguably Genesis through Malachi. <laughs> I, you have to, I think, have a different approach to what goes in the canon. However, the canon means the... 66 books of the Bible. Yeah, the list of the books. However, what needs to be pointed out here is that there was a list of questionable books in the canon at the time of the Reformation because there was, along with the rediscovery of the original writings of the prophets and apostles came a new review of the canon. The question was, for instance, what do you do with all these books that the medieval church accepted as biblical books? Shepherd of Hermas and others. Yeah, Maccabees, yeah, Tobit. Apocryphal books. And especially you, the apocryphal books, yeah. What do you do with all these? They aren't canonical. So questions of the list, the official list of the biblical books, came up again. And it had always been questioned whether Hebrews, Second Peter... James, the last seven Revelation, books in our New Testament canon. Exactly. Now, for our purposes here, we're not scholars of the canon necessarily. We would have to do our own study to try to make a case for why it should all be included. But the bottom line is all of the reformers, even eventually Luther, came to realize that there was a lot historically in favor of the canon as we now have it. So some of the writings of the church fathers, such as the shepherd and other things that were in the medieval canon and circulated around in medieval Bibles, they were clearly excised. The Apocrypha, we 
discovered was part of the Alexandrian canon, therefore was to be excluded. The Palestinian Jews did not recognize it. And at this time, Rome was beginning to say, well, maybe the apocryphal books are indeed part of the original canon. And Trent promulgated that. And I, I'm not mistaken. I think Trent is the first the canonical. Council the Council of Trent is the first statement by the, the Roman church anyway of the extent of the canon. I think it's the first. Is it not the first statement in church history, the official statement of the canon in any place? Yeah, the 66 books plus, plus the, the Apocrypha. Apocrypha. Yeah. yeah. So Luther's living in a more fluid time than we are, and I think it's important yeah. to point that out. Yeah, he, it's not like he's, you know, showing up at one of our churches next week and utters, I think that the epistle of James ought to be thrown out because it doesn't preach what I think it should say. Having said that, in his own time, other reformers like John Calvin said that that was a very incautious kind of remark to make, that there's a lot of scholarly consensus down through the ages that uh, James is an unmistakable part of the New Testament canon. And, and probably the brother of our Lord. Right. right. Yeah. All right. What is the apparent contradiction then between James and Paul? Well, on the surface, it appears that James is teaching justification by works. Because as of the verse that you just read in chapter 2, that a man... Is not justified by faith alone, but by what he by, does and not by a, faith alone. Exactly. And so that's the apparent. That's If you just look at it, that's the apparent contradiction. It appears that Paul, on the one hand, in Galatians, is saying that a person is justified by faith alone, and James is saying that a person is not justified by faith alone. Okay, so it appears to be Galatians 2 and 3 and Romans 4 against James 2. Yeah, and to do a little bit of a background here, James was very concerned with the Jerusalem congregation, and the Jerusalem congregation was falling apart under persecution. They're all Jews. All Jews. Hardly any Gentiles in this congregation, if any. Right. But, but, the, but let me just say this, Mike, as you're saying this, that's why we say, number one, it's apparent. The contradiction is apparent. And what you're about to say, or what, what you appear to be saying, is that Paul and James are addressing different issues right. to different congregations. Exactly. The Jewish congregation there, as you say, the Jerusalem congregation was Jewish, and they were suffering tremendous persecution after one more uprising against Rome. By the zealots. By the zealots. Rome said, all right, we're going to do this once and for all. We're going to crush them. And they were merciless in their treatment of the Jews. The Jerusalem church, of course, were victims, along with non-Christian Jews, of that persecution. And the only way the Christian Jews were surviving was from offerings from Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians outside of Jerusalem where the persecution wasn't as fierce. And Paul mentions that in Romans chapter 16, that he's bringing an offering from Macedonia back to the suffering Jewish church in Jerusalem. Which was a big deal. because Huge deal. Because mm -hmm. the Jerusalem church now is the recipient of the Gentile charity. Yep. All right, so you have all of this stuff going on in the background. James could be understood here as saying, I hear all of these people, especially Gentile Christians now, chattering about being justified by grace. Fine. I can go along with Paul's teaching here. But there are a lot of people who are saying that they are justified by faith alone, and there is absolutely no evidence of any fruit in their lives. And yet they say, well, we're justified by faith alone. Well, if you don't have a faith that works, mm -hmm. then I'm telling you, you don't have any faith at all. 
Now, here's the crucial thing, and Paul says this, and the Reformers said this, including Luther. We are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Faith, the faith that justifies, is the same faith that immediately, as Luther says, sets about looking for something to do. It is a working faith. Now, it seems to me that's what James is saying. He doesn't say here that justification was made complete by obedience. He says that faith was made complete by obedience. That the faith that justifies is just a receiving thing, but faith, justifying faith, is made complete, that is, goes beyond justifying and is obedient by its works of charity. Now, it seems to me that that's not saying anything different, really, from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, you say you have faith, you know, but faith without love exactly. is a clanging symbol. It's banging gong. It means absolutely nothing. If you have faith so that you can move mountains, it means nothing without love. It's also the same thing he says in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he goes on to talk about demonstrating one's faith through actions. It's the implications of Galatians 6 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the conclusion of almost all of his letters when we talk about his setting forth theological or doctrinal issues in the first parts of his letters, and then he makes practical application of them in the second parts of his letters. It's essentially the same thing. The, the fact being, justification is not simply a matter of intellectually assenting to a particular body of truth but that truth also has transforming power. There are a couple of things that jump to mind as a result of this discussion. I think one of the things it's very, very important we consider that both Paul and James look to the example of Abraham. And both cite Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. And that's really clear. And even James discusses that every bit as much as Paul does. The second thing is I think we get not a parallel passage, but some important help here in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council, where the same question was discussed probably shortly before James writes this epistle. Beginning in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15, you have Paul and Barnabas coming back and reporting all the great stuff God's doing among the Gentiles to the church in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, we read, the apostles and elders met to consider the question. And the question was, the Pharisees were saying that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses, which would have been what James were saying if James 2, according to the Roman Catholic interpretation, that were justified by faith and by works is the correct interpretation. The elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Interesting. God knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Mm -hmm. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear, faith and works? Mm -hmm. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The response, wish this happened at more church bodies, the whole body became silent. As they listened to <laughs> Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, 
After this, I will return to rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it. The remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, have been known for ages. So James then blesses this decision by saying the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ is a fulfillment of a prophecy that God made to Amos. Just a, a marvelous assertion. And then James, James goes on to say, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Great point. Instead, we should write them telling them, and here's the obstacle James is trying to get rid of that continually divides Jew and Gentile, which makes it so tough for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Instead, we should write them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So James, then, in the, at least in the Jerusalem Council, is saying, look, we can't make it any harder for the Gentiles, but they need to realize that what they eat and their sexual immorality provides this continual source of contention among the Jews. They've got to stop that. Mm-hmm. And that would fit almost perfectly with what he says in James chapter 2 about being justified by faith, but a faith that is also accompanied by the various good works, and I would assume would be the kind of things that are mentioned here in Acts chapter 15. Look, the Gentiles have to stop this stuff. Yeah, again, and Paul says that love is the ethic we have to employ in our fellowship with each other, that the legalists have got to stop it, and those who are free in Christ have to stop it. If we're going to live together in Christ, we have to get beyond these make a rule or break a rule approaches to the Christian family. Again, Paul says much the same thing. You who glorify your freedom in Christ, do you use that freedom to offend your brother? You know, that's a real question that is raised here. And yet he says, stand firm in your freedom. Don't let the Judaizers come and take away that freedom that you have in Christ. Well, that's the delicate balance that I think both James and Paul are dealing with. Yep, absolutely. Because on one hand, it's true. You don't want legalists to be defining what we as Christians can or cannot do just because of the weakness of their conscience. But you also don't want the rest of us who feel like we are free to do things that they don't think we should be doing to lord it over them and put it in their face. That's not loving either. Well, I mentioned before, I am no fan of the new perspective on Paul, especially the way in which people like N.T. Wright and others redefine justification. Mm -hmm. But I do think one of the helpful benefits of the recent discussion of Paul, especially through the Sanders and Dunn lens, is it reminds us that a lot of these issues that James and Paul are addressing specifically result because of the Gentile mission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Paul, this Pharisee, is called to go off now to be the apostle of the Gentiles, And when Gentiles come to faith in Christ, they've never heard of Moses. They don't know the Old Testament. They begin to worship with these Jewish Christians who are steeped in the Ten Commandments, steeped in the tradition of the fathers. They engage in sexual immorality. The whole book of Corinthians reminds us how fleshy the Gentiles are and how they think nothing of stopping off at the temple on the way home and indulging in temple prostitution or some kind of pagan feasting and then worshiping on Sunday, they have categories that they have to unlearn. This makes it really tough for the Jews in these churches who just are utterly offended by Gentile behavior. And so I think we've got to read James 2 and certainly Paul's discussion in Galatians in light of that context. Mm -hmm. And while I do think Rome's interpretation of James 2 misses the mark widely, 
and why I do think that a lot of these in the reform camp were trying to argue that we're justified by faithfulness or covenantal faith or some kind of nonsense like that. I think while James 2 is utterly misinterpreted by those people, I do think we can't read James 2 in light of Luther, Rome, Mm -hmm. in light of the modern debate among Christians, whether we're saved by faith or by faith alone. I think we've got to look at this in context. Kim, I can't agree more because very clearly the different contexts lead you to ask different questions. In Paul's context of the Gentile mission, the question is about inclusion. Yes, absolutely. How can we get in? How can we get Gentiles in the front door? For the Jews who, as you say, are appalled at the lifestyles of Gentiles, rightly, are also suffering intense persecution at the hands of the Gentiles. The question is exclusion. And at the hands of other Jews. That's right. How can we be pure? So the, the Gentile context is how can we get in? And the Jewish context is how can we keep them out? How can we be pure? And the solution is that in Christ, we're all children of Abraham. That's why Paul keeps making that point over and over and over again about Abraham. Look, we're all children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, by faith alone. So if you're asking the question, how can we be right with God? Don't go to James, go to Paul. If you're asking the question, what does it look like when Mm -hmm. a person claims to be justified, but he doesn't show any evidence of it? in his life. Then well, and, and look at James. And especially James 2 being written to a church suffering horrific persecution, and you've got Gentiles in outlying areas claiming to have the same Messiah, mm-hmm. and yet not doing anything to help alleviate the suffering. That's why Paul's letter to Rome, I think, really offers kind of the backdoor solution to this. Look, the Gentiles are going to bring you an offering. I really want to come to Rome because I want to go to Spain and preach the gospel. I've never preached it before. But first, I've got to go to Jerusalem and didn't they with reject, this offering. Didn't they reject that offering? They, well, they received the offering, but then Paul gets imprisoned by these Jews at the behest of or working with Roman authorities. So. Yeah, that's, that really is. It shows that the church was never. You want to be an apostolic church? Which one? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's not an ideal situation. But if you look at Paul and James, rather than contradicting each other, what you see is that each one of them are addressing issues that can obscure the gospel at various points. With the Galatians, the gospel can be obscured by emphasizing the necessity of works of the law in order to be justified. With James, he's concerned about the gospel being obscured by those who claim to have a right knowledge of justification, but their witness in the world, and not even in the world, but among themselves. There's partiality, there's a lack of compassion on the poor, and so forth. And James says that's a horrible testimony. Mm -hmm. That obscures the gospel of grace and the person and work Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ. You mentioned that Rome appeals to James, sort of, Paul is the apostle of the reformers, and James is the apostle of Rome. And so somehow we just have to cut our losses and say, no, I think that Rome gets James wrong. James is not the apostle of Rome. James, with the rest of the New Testament, is a witness to the gospel that was preached by Paul. But Rome taught that faith is not enough for our justification because faith is just a right knowledge. It is assent to the truth. It is assent to the truth of the church. Well, James very clearly says that that isn't faith. So you don't need something in addition to faith to justify you. James isn't saying faith isn't sufficient, so you need works 
in addition to faith to justify you. He's saying that the devils have the kind of faith that Rome calls faith. Absolutely. It's a great point. Great so point. We have to have not faith plus works to justify us. We just have to have the right kind of faith. Genuine faith. Genuine faith. <laughs> that's well, that's a good point upon which to conclude. And that ends our series on what did Paul say, our look at Paul and some of these issues related to Abraham, Moses, and the law from the book of Galatians. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. For more information about supporting our efforts, give us a call at 1-800-890-7556. That's 1-800-890-7556. You can also visit us online at whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org.